This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Friends, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. Great to be with you. February 27th, 2023. Um, So welcome back. I've been known to talk about the weather way too much here on the podcast. Um, And that's true. I apologize. Uh, I had one of my friends tell me one time, he's like, yeah, every time you open the podcast, you say something about it being a, a bright, sunny morning in Southern California or something like that. And I get it. Uh, you know, most of the time I'm trying to be positive. I'm, there's a chance I'm even bragging a little bit, you know, about the warm temperatures, the sun, the warm wind, and the fact that the top is probably off the Jeep. But today, this week, recently, <laughs> it's not one of those days. In fact, I'm starting to feel like I'm back in Indiana. Uh, the other day I drove my son to high school and it literally started hailing. Or maybe it was sleet. I don't know. I don't know the difference between the two. Uh, But it wasn't just water falling from the sky is what I'm saying. Uh, Later that night, it happened again, maybe for five to 10 minutes. Again, hail, sleet, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And then the temperature dropped to 45 degrees for most of the day. Um, And I believe last night it was about 39 degrees uh, throughout the night. Today, I think the high will be in the 50s with another 100% chance of rain. In the mountains surrounding LA, we have had blizzard warnings, which is not normal. Friends, this is crazy because because of all this precipitation, um, there will obviously be, you know, some issues, some flooding, things like that. Now I know this is literally nothing to most of you. Um, Back when we lived in the Midwest, we would go for months at a time below 45 degrees. So many times it was around zero or below zero, right? With snow on the ground for a big chunk of the winter. So this is literally nothing. Only it isn't because it's not normal. Yes, the temps drop in the winter in California. Yes, we get a bit of rain. Uh, You can kind of see snow in the mountains from time to time. But this winter is like bizarre. This is on a whole different level. Uh, you know, call it a 30-year storm or blame it on global warming. I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me. All I know is I'm cold, which is irritating because this is why we moved to California. This is why we pay the sunshine tax, right? Okay, enough whining. Uh, Let's dive into our minute of transparency. So I'm just going to call this one the end of an era. Now, this minute of transparency really has nothing to do with our topic for today, but it was just on my mind this last week. So I decided I would uh, talk about it on the podcast. So I attended a volleyball tournament recently um, that my son competed in. I hauled out the old camera, got the batteries all charged up, and I prepared to take pictures throughout the day. Nothing new. I've basically been taking pictures of my kids for as long as I can remember. It all started back when the kids were first starting to do things, right? Extracurricular things. Uh, I didn't have a camera at the time, but the team that I worked with at the church bought me a point and shoot as a thank you gift, I guess, for uh, some of the volunteer hours I had been putting in with the web team. 
So I took that little point and shoot everywhere. I took pictures, but it also did video. Um, I would download all of it onto my desktop computer, and then I would kind of use the content on our personal family blog. As you guessed it, it wasn't long before I was itching to upgrade. So my first DSLR was the Nikon D40X. Basically a small frame DSLR came with two lenses, one for kind of walking around and the other was a short zoom that I used for sports, wildlife, stuff like that. But the crazy thing was how amazing the pictures were, right? It was such an upgrade from the point and shoot. Bigger megapixel count, um, you know, just the quality of the camera, the quality of the lens, stuff like that. Just amazing difference, right? So I used this camera for years uh, as my kids made their way through t-ball, basketball, hockey, and of course, soccer. But you guessed it. At some point, it was time to upgrade. The frames per second just weren't fast enough, right? My kids were getting faster every day at the sports that they were playing. So I moved up to the Canon 7D. And uh, I bought a really long lens. I bought the 100 to 400 millimeter zoom. This was perfect, right? My kids played quite a few sports, but soccer seemed to be the main one, at least for two of them. So this setup was perfect, right? The frames per second allowed me to do short bursts and, and typically get the ball in the right place on, on one of the frames, at least. And the 100 to 400 zoom literally allowed me to get the bulk of a soccer field um, in focus without moving, right? Like I could stand at one end of the soccer field, zoom in to the other end and, and catch a play clear at the other end of the soccer field. So it was awesome, right? And to this point, most of my photography was for us, for the family. It was just a hobby, something that I enjoyed. But at some point that changed. I can't remember if it was a coach or a parent. Somebody would basically say, hey, would you mind taking some pictures during the game and sharing them with the whole team? So I started slow and then I would upload these, you know, team photos to my Smug Mug account and then I would share the galleries with the team. Each year the galleries got a bit larger and eventually there were entire galleries for every season, right? A gallery for every game that we played. This went on for years, shooting soccer, shooting hockey, shooting baseball. But then at some point, Another upgrade had to come my way because my son entered high school and decided he wanted to play football. Now, my current setup worked okay while he was on the freshman team and even the JV team because these games are typically during the day. But as a kicker, he moved up quickly to the varsity team, which meant Friday night lights. And for those of you in the photo biz, you know that my setup just was not going to cut it in that environment. So I upgraded to my current setup. Um, I moved from the Canon 7D body to the 90D, and I bought a 70-200 which is literally the bare minimum, right, for shooting a uh, fast-paced sport, either indoors like hockey or outdoors under lights like Friday Night Lights, Friday Night Football. So that's what I upgraded to. And for the past two to three years, that's where I've been. Every Friday night, on the sidelines with a couple other parents shooting for the team, uh, uploading everything to a shared platform where the coaches and parents can download pictures of their kids. So why did I call this minute of transparency the end of an era? Pretty simple. When I took out my camera last weekend to shoot the volleyball tournament, I realized that this was it. This volleyball season will literally be the last season, the last sport, the last time I shoot pictures 
for one of my kids and for their team. In June, my son will graduate from high school and it'll be all over. None of my kids really chose to pursue a sport in college. So this is it. This is the end of an era. A phase in my life where I did a very specific thing for a very long period of time with a beginning and now an end. Now I know that's pretty dramatic. But for me, like I said, it just hit home this week and I thought I'd share. Today's topic on a totally different note, Transcending Competing Values. Chapter 1, Bump. Chapter 2, Set. Chapter 3, Spike. Chapter 1, Bump. So in honor of Tyler's last volleyball season, uh, we're going to use a volleyball motif. Bump, set, spike. It's really that simple. At least the way I grew up playing volleyball. But don't even get me started about today's volleyball. I don't even understand it. Gone are the days where all six players move spots, right? You go in when you serve and you go out at the top right position. Today, they're subbing in and out. There's movement all over the court. There's restrictions about where you can stand during the serve, restrictions on where you can spike from, uh, if you can be above the net or not above the net. And then there's that one dude that can't even adhere to the dress code, right? Why does he get to wear a different colored jersey? And at this point in my life, I'm not even going to try and understand the rules. I'm just there to shoot some pictures and watch my son have fun. But the one thing I do remember is bump, set, spike. And as far as I can tell, that hasn't really changed a whole lot. You still get three hits on each side, and they typically come in the form of a bump, then a set, and then a spike. At least that's the goal. So this is the language that we're going to use to discuss our topic for today, which is competing values. Now, the crazy thing is I couldn't even find one definition for the phrase itself, even on Urban Dictionary, which is strange to me. So we'll just let dictionary.com define the two words separately for us. So the first word is compete, which is to strive to outdo another for acknowledgement, a prize, supremacy, profit, etc. To engage in a contest. So competing is the act of doing so, right? The act of trying to outdo someone or something. The next word is value or values. Uh, and I'm really, I'm going to start with the more general ones first. So there's definitions like relative worth, merit or importance, monetary or material worth, as in commerce or trade. But the one that I really want us to understand comes from the world of sociology. And when you look at the word values from the sociological perspective, the word values refers to the ideals, customs, institutions, etc. of a society toward which the people of the group have an effective regard. So these values may be positive, as in cleanliness, freedom, education, or they can be negative, as in cruelty, crime, or blasphemy. So let's put the two together and, and finish the puzzle here. So we've got competing values when there are two or more things that we hold in high regard, but those things are trying to outdo each other. When we place value on two things that do not like each other, when we try to love two things that can't really be in the same room with each other, right? Starting to pick up on the problem. It's very similar to another problem we've discussed before, this little thing called cognitive dissonance. SciComm.net defines it this way. Cognitive dissonance is a mental conflict 
that occurs when your beliefs don't line up with your actions. It's an uncomfortable state of mind when somebody has contradictory values, attitudes, or perspectives about the same thing. Interesting, right? In fact, the word values is right there in the definition we're talking about. And back in our series called Controversy Theory, we discussed cognitive dissonance on a whole new level or at a a much greater detail than we'll do it today. Uh, In episode 16, I think it was called The Human Condition is Controversy Related, we listed some things that lead us to experience the negative side of the human condition. And one of those things was this, when our conscience is in conflict with our thinking and our behaving. Sound familiar? That is cognitive dissonance. And according to Jennifer Zisi's from the Psychom.net article, there are consequences to this. In the moment, you, ins- you experience discomfort, stress, and anxiety. Long-term, you can develop a pattern of rationalization, impaired decision-making, and a tendency to put up walls in order to hide the behavior from those around you. So let's come full circle and get back to competing values, because it's in the same general family. Like we said, we have competing values when we're placing value on two things that are in opposition, two things that shouldn't really exist together. For example, hot temperatures and cold temperatures. You can place value on both, right? You can view hot temperatures as awesome because I get to go to the beach and hang out in the ocean. And you can value cold temperatures because, well, that's when I get to go snowboarding and, uh, and skiing and stuff like that. So I value both. However, in the same space, when they get too close together, what happens? Well, you get weather. (laughs) Unfortunately, extreme weather, like hurricanes, tornadoes, things like that, right? And so it is in our own lives. There are times when we look and we realize that we're placing value on two things that don't play well with each other. Okay, back to the volleyball terminology, right? So this chapter is called bump. In volleyball, the bump is typically used on the first hit. After the opponent has hit the ball three times and is sending it over to you. And if the opponent has done their job well, it's going to be coming over the net with pretty great force, typically at somebody in the middle to back portion of the court. The bump is the safest way to field an incoming missile like this, right? So the player places his or her hands together, turns their wrists upward, creating a wide, flat surface. When the ball arrives, this flat surface typically allows you to direct the ball to the next player. By simply changing the angle of your arms and raising or dropping a shoulder, you can direct the ball where you need it to go. This is very similar to step one in dealing with competing values. It's recognizing them as they crop up and become an issue, and then fielding them as they come over the net, so to speak. Chapter 2, The Set When we recognize that we have competing values, we have some options. Like Jennifer said in the article, we can get stressed out, begin to rationalize, and allow things to deteriorate. Or we can address the issue head on. Step two in dealing with the competing values we find uh, is to come up with a plan to determine just how serious the situation is and decide how we're going to handle it. In volleyball, the set 
is typically the second hit. So if the bump was completed correctly, the ball should be moving high in the air toward the net and typically somewhere right in the middle of the court. The setter will be there waiting for the ball, preparing to set it for the final hit. After the bump, the ball should be traveling a bit slower than it came over the net. This allows the setter to get under the ball with arms outstretched above his or her head. As the ball approaches, the setter places one hand on each side of the ball, virtually catching it between fingertips, and then releases it back up into the air in one smooth motion. Now, the setter has options. You can set the ball low and right in front of you. You can set it high and to the side of the court in front of you. You can set it so the ball goes over your head to the side of the court behind you. Or you can set it back into the court for somebody in the back row. Needless to say, the possibilities are endless. But the final thing to touch on when it comes to the set is the spin of the ball. A good setter, when they catch and release the ball, can literally stop the rotation of the ball. So as the ball goes back up into the air, there is no movement. It literally appears to just be floating there in space and time. It's really a thing of beauty. And it's also a great illustration for step two in dealing with competing values. We recognize that there's a problem. We slow it down. We decide what we're going to do with it. And then we tee it up just right for the next step in the process. But before we get there, it might be good to walk through a few examples of the kinds of competing values that we face, right? Not just the values themselves, but the severity, the level of damage that it is or can be doing to your life. So let's start with one that's low severity, right? I'll call this one the sweet tooth. So the competing value is a love for chocolate or sweets and a desire to be in shape. Now, I didn't have to make this up because it literally fell in my lap the other day. My son, a senior in high school, uh, admitted to us that he struggles with the sweet tooth, right? He enjoys chocolate and not just chocolate, but sugar in general. It's always in the house. It's in his room. He buys it when he's out with his friends. It's always around like a warm blanket. At the same time, he also plays sports. He works out and he has a desire to look a certain way in the mirror. Now, before you feel like I'm picking on my son, take a look in the mirror yourself. You and I struggle with the exact same things, right? I'm not picking on my son. I'm just using him as an illustration because we all deal with this on some level. We all love to eat certain things. We all want to look a certain way. And therein lies the battle, right? The competition between the two values. We have to find balance in order to level the playing field and keep one of the values from overpowering the other. Okay. Next up, let's do one that might be considered medium severity, right? I'll call this one the workaholic. Now, this isn't rocket science. You probably knew what the competing values were the minute I said workaholic, right? Competing values are a desire to put 100% of your effort into work and a desire to be there for your family or to have a life. Now, I said this was medium severity because the stakes are a bit higher than your chocolate intake, right? In the chocolate example, eating too much sugar might make it a bit harder for you to maintain your six-pack, but working too much could have a lasting impact on your marriage or the relationship you form with your children. Just a bit more important, right? There is nothing wrong with being a hard worker. 
or having a strong work ethic. But if you have a family, you'll need to find the balance in there at some point where you can knock the ball out of the park at work, but also be an active participant in your family. Sounds easy, right? But not so easy, especially in corporate America, where capitalism suggests the harder you work and the harder you climb the ladder of success, the more happy you'll be, the more money you'll have. Everything will just be great, right? Okay, let's wrap this up with a high level of severity, okay? I'm going to call this one the rum and coke debacle. Again, not rocket science, competing values, a love for the hard stuff, and a desire not to have your life fall apart. Speaking from experience, when I started drinking, I eventually landed on rum and coke as my drink of choice. Not sure why, uh, but that's what worked for me especially Appleton Estate Rum, straight from the island of Jamaica. Now, this is my story, not the same for everyone. There are millions of people out there who have a healthy relationship with alcohol. But for me, not so much. It went a little too far, and it became a competing value. On the one hand, I wanted the good job, a loving wife, a robust family, health, happiness, all of those things. But at the same time, I loved the rum and coke. And the reason that I call this a high level of severity is because the end result can be disastrous. Toward the end of my fascination with alcohol, the competing values had become obvious and at times volatile. And if something hadn't changed, I'm really not sure where I would be today. If alcohol had have won out, I think my life would be somewhere in the gutter. But luckily things did change and I no longer allow alcohol to compete for my attention. So let's summarize. Like the set in volleyball, we look at the ball coming toward us, in this case, the competing values that we've identified. We determine how fast the ball is coming, which is the severity of the competing value. And then we determine where we want to set the ball or what we should do about our competing values. Chapter three, spike. So the final hit is typically a spike. If the setter set the ball well, it should be drifting perfectly toward the hitter with little to no rotation above the net and about a foot off of the net. The hitter launches into the air to get as much height as possible and times it so that they arrive at the ball at their highest possible point. The spike is the hardest of the three hits, a one-handed hit with a full swing driving through the ball giving the ball that forward rotation if possible so that it just dives on the other side of the net to the ground. Now, a textbook spike is very difficult to stop because of the speed and the placement of the spike. Similarly, step three in dealing with competing values requires us to spike the ball, to take the plan that we've come up with in step two and put it into action, not to waver, wondering if we've made the right decision or continuing to rationalize our dueling behaviors, but to draw a line in the sand and act. Now, easier said than done. What does that look like, right? Well, it will be different for every single person and every single situation. There is no one size fits all when dealing with competing values. Now, looking at the three examples we walked through, I can speak to at least two of them. So let me do that just, just to give you some examples. So the first is the workaholic. 
Now, I was never a workaholic in the classic sense, right? The guy who dresses up in a three-piece suit, heads off to work at 4 a.m., works in the giant office on the 54th floor of a skyscraper overlooking Central Park, in and out of meetings all day, buying and selling companies that impact the global economy, hiring and firing people at will, getting home at night just in time to crawl into bed in order to do it all over again the next morning. No, not me. Not in a hundred years. However, I would consider myself a hard worker and someone with a strong work ethic. And when I was working for the church as a web director, there were many seasons where my desire to work hard was probably taken advantage of just a little. Now, those of you who work in the church world will understand what I'm talking about. The church is a very unique organization, and it has a very unique way of interacting with its employees. In my experience, the church pays very little, but it's okay, right? Because you're working for the Lord. It's ministry, right? And that should be payment in and of itself. And second, if you're working more than 40 hours a week, it's not really work because it's your ministry, right? It's just living the life God called you to live. Now, my wife called me out on this a number of times. And what did I do? Well, I listened to her, of course, and I made changes in my behavior, right? No, of course not. I recited the church position as if I was a clone accessing the party line database in order to explain the strange phenomenon that we were both experiencing. At the most recent church I worked at, staff members were expected to work the normal 40-hour week. Then there were patio duties on the weekends, before and after the weekend services. Then there were these big push weekends, three to four times a year, where it was called in all play. Everyone gets to participate as if we wanted to at the time. Um, All staff were expected to turn out and help deliver an amazing weekend experience that would get more people to attend the church or to give to the campaign being discussed during the service. Of course, that money piece always seems to be woven into the megachurch experience, right? And finally, there was a 10-week discipleship program at the church. Every staff member was expected to run at least one of these groups each year, possibly two if you had time. Now, if you start adding up all of these things, you realize that there aren't enough hours in a day or in the week to fit this in and be part of a healthy family at the same time. And me, being a hard worker, having a strong work ethic, and being mildly indoctrinated by the church, it was just a recipe for disaster. I really started to feel the effects of it the last year or two as the web director at this church. I was getting irritated every time I was asked to do something above and beyond, outside of the normal work week. It was infringing on time with my family, and I just knew there was something wrong. Something had to change. Fast forward to today, no longer working for that church, and life has kind of gone back to a more normal, healthy mix of work and family, business and pleasure, if you will. Now, that doesn't mean that the job I'm doing doesn't come with the same opportunities for workaholics, right? I look at some of the younger guys that I work with, and they have that fire in their eyes, right? They work late into the evening to learn the craft, and you know they want to be seen as a team player. Uh, they're held up in front of the team as examples of what a good team should look like, right? A good team member, because they took one for the team last night and helped knock out this project, right? Most of them have aspirations for moving up, reaching higher positions, and of course, getting paid more. But it's all good. Like, it's all part of the American dream, right? I mean, capitalism kind of suggests this type of behavior. But for me, at 52, I've seen enough to know that it's just not my jam. 
I've been there. I've done that. And I think that I've turned the corner and I've started to realize that life is so much bigger than work, than your career, and then climbing the proverbial ladder. Okay, that took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. Uh, So let's finish up with the obvious one, the rum and coke debacle. So toward the end of my struggle with alcohol, I was acutely aware of my competing values. On the one hand, I wanted to be buzzed all the time, every day, drinking as much as possible every day without getting in trouble, right? But on the other hand, I wanted the good life, the normal life where I have a job, a spouse, three kids, a white picket fence, a couple cars, and I get to go on vacation a couple times a year. The problem was these two things were starting to bump into each other, right? Just a little at first, but then more and more violently toward the end. I started to realize that the drinking wanted control over my life at the expense of the other things. And the other things wanted my time and energy at the expense of my ability to drink. At the end of the day, this is the struggle, right? This is what it looks like when an alcoholic explains the games that they had to play to keep drinking. Things like hiding the amount of alcohol that you purchase, hiding empty containers, hiding the shots that you took prior to going to social drinking events, and hiding the amount that you are actually drinking each day by staying up later than your spouse and doing a lot of your drinking after they had gone to bed. All the things, right? But as these things pick up in intensity, your competing values become more and more entrenched in hand-to-hand combat. And eventually, you hit a wall. For me, it came down to a shootout at high noon. My life on one side and alcohol on the other. Main Street, USA, back-to-back, pacing off 10 steps, then turning around, and the shootout began. Luckily, my life won. Alcohol took two in the chest and was laid to rest back in 2017. Now, I love that I have personal experience with both of these sets of competing values because each one illustrates a very important version of a spike, right? Or step three in the process. The workaholic situation is a good example of moderation, right? I realized that there were competing values in play and I found a happy medium. I work and when I work, I work hard. I give my all to the team and the projects that I'm a part of but I've come to the place where I can put it down a lot easier than it was before. I'm not as concerned about what my team will think or what my boss will think. I'm able to stand up for myself and discuss what it means to have a healthy work-life balance. And internally, I'm just not that sold on work anymore as my driving motivator, right? My career is not as big of a deal as it was to me before. It's something that we all do, but not who we are. And someday that truth will become painfully clear to everyone. And when it comes to the rum and coke debacle, I mean, that's just a flat out example of abstinence, right? It's it's not something that I can moderate. I had to literally choose to abstain from alcohol. And this is really the hardest thing you can do, right? It's why addictions are so difficult to deal with. Because the thing competing for your time, or maybe for your life, is also an addictive thing. Sometimes it's a chemical addiction like alcohol, nicotine, heroin, caffeine, but it could also be a behavior that produces an amazing chemical reaction within your body, as in the case of sex or gaming or gambling. Whatever the case, addicts often reach that place where moderation fails, right? Trying to honor both of the competing values at a more healthy level 
just does not seem to work. So you have to get extreme. You realize that abstinence is literally your only option. Because once you get the value out of your life, the other value has free reign. You can focus on the other thing with your full attention, your full strength, and all of your faculties in place. So like I said, based on those two different things that I've dealt with in my life, I've learned the art of moderation and also the art of abstinence and the reason why both can be important. Now, that's really all that I had to say about competing values. But I realize at times that I don't paint a very pretty picture. I'm not very optimistic. I'm not very future thinking. I think it's partly because I'm a realist. And to me, the stuff we just walked through is the reality, right? It's the very real struggle that people have, all part of the human condition. We discuss different types of competing values, what they do to us, and a couple ways that we can deal with them, right? I even gave you a three-step process to walk through. I mean, that's pretty fun, right? But again, I often leave off the pretty stuff, the light at the end of the tunnel, what success looks like. Maybe I just don't need that as much as the average person. Um, as an Enneagram one, I find that I don't typically need people telling me I'm doing a good job. I'm not a fan of praise. I hate public affirmation. At the end of the day, I really just want to do a good job for me, for myself. And of course, I don't want other people to view me as incompetent. As long as these two things are in place, life is good. But let's end today with a more pretty picture, right? One where the future looks bright. I can only do this using the experiences that I've gone through, but that should be enough. So from where I stand, the future is bright, at least for me, right? I look back and there were definitely bright days in my past, but there were also a lot of dark days, right? Most often because I was giving in to some of my competing values. But looking ahead, I am optimistic, right? The changes that I've made in my life suggest that things are going to be different. More time with friends, more time with family, less time focused on work, climbing the social ladder or the corporate ladder, living the sober life, clean mind, every hour of every day under my control, never wondering if I'm going to be in the right frame of mind for the activity that comes along that day, or the ability to be in a healthy relationship without this elephant always in the room, and a newfound ability to be creative, right? The fog has literally lifted and things that I've always wanted to contribute to the world are finally able to come to life and breathe. That's the pretty picture, right? That's how things have changed for me. And that's what I hope for each and every one of you, that you're able to identify and deal with your competing values as early in life as possible in order to give yourself the brightest possible future. So let's land the plane. This week, I want you to bump, set, spike in your own life. Visualize the ball coming over the net and bump it high into the center of the court. When it comes to you, look it over and make a solid plan for dealing with it. Then set the ball to the outside hitter. And finally, be the plan. Embrace it and spike the ball so hard that it's game, set, match for that competing value. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. I love that we get to do this together and that we're on this journey. Next week, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. I'll just be honest. I have a long list of topics that I can pull from. But I would also love to know what you're dealing with and what topics you find helpful. So if you have one, just let me know. 
shoot me an email to info at transcendhuman.com and I will be sure to add it to my list. So that's it, folks. Uh, Have a great week. And as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels. And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.